Recorded live outside the Phantasmo Lounge, deep in the woods of Luray, Virginia. It's Phantasmo After Dark, with your host, Rob Floyd, and special guest co-host, Professor Sam Batman and Commodore Tony Mercer. Ahoy! Hello, good evening. Well, hey guys, and hey everybody else, welcome back to the old podcast here. Tonight's topic is going to be interesting and fun. We're going to try to talk about when the setting for horror movies went from natural creepy settings like gothic castles and creepy mansions to peaceful pastoral settings such as your neighborhood or a farm or an old country road, places that typically were not creepy, but now whenever you go to any place like that, that's all you can think of is how creepy it is. So we'll see what we can do here. And that's the story of that story. So. What were we, we were talking about this the other night, guys. Yes. And what did we talk about? Do you remember? <laughs> I don't know, but I like the way you said Luray. Luray. Devil yeah. went down to Luray looking me, for a soul to steal. Let me clarify that. We are not in the Phantasmo Lounge this week. We are on location in a lonely old cabin deep in the woods of Luray, Virginia. Near the banks of the mighty Shenandoah. Yeah. Uh, taking a little vacation and relaxing, and we thought, well, you know, we got the three of us here. We... We're going to talk anyway. We might as well record it. Uh, so we did some pre-gaming last night, <laughs> what we're going to talk about, and we hope uh, we can remember what we talked about last night so we can elaborate on it tonight. Well, as I recall, we, we, at some point we were talking about we, the gradual shift, right, away from your traditionally spooky locales, right? Yeah. yeah. A, a castle is creepy. An old, dark house traditionally yeah. was creepy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an, a, another character in the film almost. But at some point... You stop having the creepy, haunted, deserted house in your neighborhood to just a regular old house in your neighborhood. Yeah. And yet there's still a monster inside it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, you wouldn't expect it to be there. Whereas in the old, the old dark house or the creepy castle, the gothic castle, you would expect something there to be creepy. But, you know, the house in your neighborhood or, you know, the farm down at the end of the road you're not expecting it to be creepy until a certain point in, a, in filmmaking. There's almost a topic in itself where you're saying, well, of course you would expect the Gothic castle to be creepy. You wouldn't expect the, the pastoral fields to be creepy. And I know exactly what you mean, but you know, there's almost a topic in, it, in itself to ask the question, why would you expect the Gothic castle to be creepy? Right? Well, I mean, that, yeah. that, that's a convention that came from somewhere. And we understand yeah. that convention and what it means. And is is the creepiness inherent to the setting or is it drawn from the convention? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So these are conventions that were established in American horror films in the the earliest days of the horror film. That's what horror films were rooted in. And then eventually you have European imports that are trading in the same sort of imagery. But the question is, uh, would the European horror films have traded in that Im- imagery had they not had the American films to draw from as an influence? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I don't know the answer to that in one way or the other. We're going to find out tonight. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's an excellent question. You know, what makes yeah. a large, imposing European castle scary and a large, imposing American skyscraper mundane? Yeah. Right. Well, because there's no vampires in those in the skyscraper, but there isn't a big, in a big old castle. Or so you've been led to believe, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I, I, I pointed out earlier. You guys, you know, correct me if I'm veering too far too fast, but right, you drive up when when uh, Janet Lee drives up to the Bates Motel. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing scary about the Bates Motel, 
until the camera pulls back and you see the creepy old house up on the hill behind it. Yeah. But until the very end of the movie, spoiler for people who've never seen Psycho, shame on you. <laughs> all the bad stuff happens in the motel, not in the creepy old house at the top yeah. of the hill. Yeah. Right? It's So it switches the convention. Uh, and from then on, after that, for everybody who's seen the movie, whenever you're driving, going on a road trip and you see run down or an older motel on the side of the road, you look over and you think or you say, oh, Bates Motel. You By know? itself in an out-of-the-way locale, not nestled safely inside a town, but just yeah. on the outskirts. And there may be nothing inherently creepy about the look of the motel, but it's ingrained in your head because of Psycho. And I think that's what it is with these farm settings or neighborhoods is because certain movies came out, it's at a certain time, like Chainsaw is the first one that comes to anybody's mind, I think, for a farm type horror or old country road thing. After that came out, or maybe sometime before that, was another film we talked about. From then on, it's a creepy setting, and you have that image in your head. But until then, it wasn't. Well, you know. Night of the Living Dead begins in a cemetery. Yeah. But it doesn't stay in the cemetery. It goes to the isolated farmhouse. Yeah. Which until then would have been a completely innocuous locale. And then all the action takes place in and around that farmhouse. And now again, yeah. you see a farmhouse standing in a field by itself. You're going, yeah, I don't know that that place looks defensible against zombies. <laughs> Too many open windows. Yeah. Whereas before you'd be going, oh man, that's like what my grandparents lived in. That was a nice place. You know, that's a nice, nice piece of property right there. <laughs> yeah. I tell you what. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know if if you wanted to, to analyze why it is that the 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 Bates house, not the Bates motel, but the Bates house or the creepy castle has an inherent creepiness to it. I mean, you could say, oh, well, there's a, a sense of decay and uh, an age, a sense of history's unknown, right? Like you don't know what could possibly have transpired in this thing over the course of its existence over time and the weight of that could contribute to it being scary if you're talking about a castle and you're talking about a gothic horror then you're talking about just the very idea that something like a vampire or a werewolf or a witch is very much an old world concern and an old world setting sort of anchors that old world concern into mm-hmm. our world now. So that's the sort of armchair analysis you could do if you were trying to figure out why those settings would be inherently creepy in and of themselves, as opposed to just established conventions in a horror film. Yeah. And that's what yeah. makes them creepy. But I'm just spitballing here, and all of that could well, be Well, that's complete, all we're doing. All of that <laughs> no, no. could be complete crap, right? It might not actually be true. But you could apply the exact same thing to the farmhouse setting, the pastoral setting, the isolated house in the middle of the field right is yeah is there something about that setting in and of itself that triggers some kind of primal instinctual fear or loneliness or sense of vulnerability or again is it just these are conventions that have been established in horror films over time i I suspect the truth is probably somewhere in the middle yeah for all that well there's there's mileage there in a sense that you know old things imply decay right you don't have anything here in the United States more than 400 years old, right? Jamestown, 1607. Plymouth Rock, 1620. You don't really get America, America going for another, what, 100, 150 years, right? America, America. Yeah. So you've got nothing old established here the way you do in Europe 
where they've got more than a century or more than a millennium on you, right? This castle is 800, 1200, 1500, 2000 years old, right? There's plenty of time for creepiness to uh, take root there. You don't have anything old here. And then when you do have something old, it's still not that old. Uh, your oldest settlements are going to be in Virginia and in New England, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So you have to transition away from that perspective of creepiness and evil and decay and a monster to just the isolation and the abandonment, I guess, uh, and start to think that, you know, could you have a haunting in a brand new subdivision or could you have a haunting like they did in Poltergeist? Could you have a haunting in a trailer park or uh, a brand new high rise? And so we've had to fall back even further on the, the, the notion of, well, yes, if it's built over an old Native American graveyard, but otherwise probably not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's interesting. So the the old dilapidated farmhouse in, in this sense is simply the closest analog that we would have here. Right. To the ancient castle mm-hmm. in, in Europe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, well, you know, in, in t- touching on that, the the feeling of isolation. That this is a kind of a whole separate topic, but we we never go on tangents here. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of a. I'm not, I don't know if a primal fear, but probably an old one of your first fears as as a as a child uh, being abandoned or being left alone, you know, your parents leaving you alone, or going away, and, or thinking that that you could be left alone. Uh, I know I've had nightmares like that over the years. You know, ever since I was a kid, and it is primal because pets are the same way. You know, <laughs> you go you, if you have a dog or a cat, and you go outside for a minute, you come back five minutes you come back they're like oh god you're back you're back i thought you were never you know, your dog jumps all over you yeah, sure so it's it's that's kind of pro- playing on it almost a universal primal fear well and it, it's if we're going down the track that i think we're going down tonight in the movies we're going to talk about right you you do address that in the sense that civilization has power society has power and the isolation comes when you are removed from that society. Yeah. Therefore, whether it's Hansel and Gretel being out in the woods and finding the witch's gingerbread house, or it's Little Red Riding Hood going out in the woods to deliver the basket of goodies to her grandmother, or the road trip gone awry that leads us into so many of the situations yeah. that we're going to get to, right? It's all taking place away from the core of society, the core of civilization in the city. You know, you go from the city to the suburbs to the rural area, and then you're out there in the middle of nowhere, and there's that isolated farmhouse or that lonely uh, motel or that barn or whatever it is. Hmm. Something or different rules apply out here in in, uh, the territories, right? (laughs) Yeah. Away from civilization. Well, you know, and to backtrack a little bit, too, on that, some of the settings that you mentioned and talking about the movies we talked about the other day. We were talking too about like when did this when did this start in film? Mm-hmm. Because up through more well, the 30s and the 40s was more the Gothic era stuff. The 50s was the Atomic era, and that's a whole separate topic. All that's a whole different type of film altogether. But the 60s, even the 60s through the 70s, there were, Hammer was still making Gothic horror pictures. Sure, but we were. I think we touched on it. It seems like it started. You could argue Night of the Living Dead. The late 60s. Yeah, 68. But I think it really kind of took hold, what do we say, in the early 70s with what Chainsaw was one of the first ones, but that was 74. Right. What else? What was the other thing we had? We backtracked to Last House on the Left, which I think is 72. Yeah. 72. Which has action that takes place in the big city. Mm-hmm. 
right? But all the real horror occurs away from the city and as you return to the country. Yeah, on a lonely country road and then the woods right behind the girl's house, Mm -hmm. which is supposed to be her safest place. Right. You know, so then that makes even the surrounding, the area surrounding your yard and your house creepy, you know? Yeah. And that's very much a don't talk to strangers, don't accept rides from strangers kind of set up too. Yeah. Yeah. And you could even argue, I mean, you know, I spit on your grave the same way mm-hmm. that it's the girls going like, like what we're doing now, <laughs> going on vacation. And, you know, she rented this house. There's a nice lake there. It's all calm. There's a quaint little town. And then this horror happens to her there. And after that, you know, would you look at that same setting the same way again? If you've never been exposed to that, probably so. But but those of us that watch a lot of horror movies, you know. Yeah. Well, let me backtrack you a bit because we did we did mention Psycho, right? Which is yeah. nineteen sixty. Uh huh. And Hitchcock's correct me if I'm wrong. Hitchcock's next big picture is it sixty three? The Birds, or did he do something in the interim? Because mm-hmm. the birds, Where are you Commodore. <laughs> you got me on that one. <laughs> well, I, I ask because you know the Birds is a fairly pastoral setting, right? Small oh, yeah. small village, yeah. right? But the action did start in, in the big city in San Francisco. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then it transitions to this smaller coastal town. Yeah. And then the, the horror comes from outside with animals run amok. And so The Birds really counts more as a yeah. thriller than an outright horror movie. But still, it's not a castle. It's not anything old world, right? And so you're seeing this, this slow and subtle transition into more and more innocuous yeah. pedestrian well, yeah, it's, it's outside, Americana settings, yeah, outside right? Outside a school and a gas station and somebody's A restaurant. Out. A restaurant. Just these play average, normal places you go every day. Mm-hmm. And now it's become a scene of terror and horror. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, you really start to get into that in the 70s, I guess. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's what we were talking about. It just, it just came back to me. Was that a, cho- a conscious choice to do that, to change the setting, to make this setting creepy, or was it necessity of budget? We can't afford a big set. We can't afford to build a big set, so we're going to go on location. Well, what location do, can we get for free to use? Hey, there's that old farmhouse that my cousin's uncle owns that he said we could use. You know, okay. What's our story now? You know, we have our location. Mm-hmm. I'm leaning towards more towards that was pretty much the reason for most of these because uh, they came out of the grind, pretty much the grindhouse era, the drive-in era. I think when most of this type of thing shifted because they were having to make, you know, independent, they were all mostly independent pictures mm-hmm. and made very quick so they could get them out and start making some money. Yeah. I think you can make a very strong argument that it's done for budgetary reasons. Mm-hmm. But also, I think there may have been this undercurrent of social thought, not conscious social thought, but yeah. just an unconscious social thought. Why would ordinary circumstances reveal a monster, right? And what had happened in the previous decade or two to show us that you know, there are creepy things right next door where you least expect them. Oh, yeah. You know, whether it is the, uh, the Starkweather murder rampage in the mid-50s or Ed Gein in the late 50s, yeah. or flash forward another decade to the Manson murders, which un- unnerved the entire nation, right? Oh, yeah. And then suddenly nobody is safe at home. And not so much the murders themselves, but the revelation that Manson's family used to do those creepy crawls where they would slip into houses while people were asleep and rearrange furniture. Yeah. Yeah, just because they could. Yeah. 
and you know you wake up and things have been moved and things have changed and you're terrified and it's not because you have a poltergeist it's because you don't keep your windows locked yeah which is a terrifying thought sure you know uh, so yeah according to the oracle of uh, the birds was hitchcock's next picture after psycho chronologically okay but acquiring minds want to know they do they look do. this stuff up we don't leave people <laughs> hanging <laughs> no well yeah so i i tend to think that the transition to pastoral settings in broad daylight for horror films has a lot to do with the dissolution of the studio system and the rise of the independence as you transition yeah. out of the 60s and into the 70s. Things just in the studio era tended to be shot on sound stages and backlot. Yeah. Now that you have independent producers generating most of the genre content in the early to mid 70s, it's about where can you shoot cheaply and without a lot of hassle and probably without a license Yeah. Uh, using natural light and all that sort of thing. So I tend to think that that more than anything was probably the, the, the driving force there. I struggle with the idea that someone engineered it, right, as a, as yeah. a, as a thoughtful aesthetic choice mm-hmm. and said, mm-hmm. you know, you know what would be really scary is if we went out to the middle of this field <laughs> with that creepy-ass farmhouse. I think it was a function of necessity, but, yeah. you know, at the same time, I think it's uh, uh, impossible to deny, t- to Sam's point, the influence that the post-Summer of Love hippie hangover and the, the Manson family and do you know who your kids are and what the hell they're up to, period, uh, yeah. had on that. Um, and it's tempting to draw a line between the two things. And there may very well be a connection uh, between the two things because when you think of one, you tend to think of the other, right? The, yeah. the killer hippie and the... <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or hippie biker or whatever the case yeah. may be in the, well, and, you know, in the and that, pastoral setting. And that brings us to a couple of other movies. <laughs> Talking about the hip killer biker and the or the killer hippie, you know, werewolves on wheels. Holding on to that gothic supernatural monster, but bringing it into, you know, this normal regular setting, you know, and trying to shift it. And uh, even with vampire movies in the, in the 70s like that, you know, the Yorga movies, mm-hmm. he was a classic vampire, but it was in modern day. They still had him living in a big mansion. It wasn't quite a castle. So they were trying to keep that creepy element, but it was somebody's house they could use the location for as sure. well as in sure. Hollywood or L.A. or somewhere. Um but you go to Blackula, and he just had his coffin stashed. What it was in a underground in a plant, some kind of electrical plant, or so you're talking like a factory or, a factory, or a warehouse, something yeah, like yeah, that, warehouse. some industrial setting. Yeah, something like that is where he who didn't have it, you know, didn't have a mansion or a gothic castle or anything like that. So it's the same thing as where what kind of location can we get? Okay, now we've got to make our creepy story around right. it. Right. It's not there's anything inherently creepy about the warehouse district, yeah. but what if <laughs> what if one of these homeless guys hanging around the warehouse district is actually X? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if you cannot make a plausible storyline of vampire, werewolf, alien, whatever your your classic monster might have been. Yeah. And then you go to, well, it's, it's just some psycho killer, yeah. right? For, yeah. for unexplained reasons, why do they do what they do? Yeah, and the majority of them, I think, were more like that, a psycho killer type thing. There's just these few instances, um, just off the top of my head. I'm sure there were more, though. But with the werewolf and the vampire, I can't think of a, a Frankenstein-like version that they did that with around that time. 
except for Blackenstein, but we won't talk about that right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's set about that one to better. Uh, and nothing comes no, to mind. Nothing springs it? to mind, no. I no. mean, there were some zombie pictures, and yeah. but mostly it was like psycho killers or slasher type. Or, or just, you know, like Tony said, you don't know who your kids are, and you don't know who your kids are with or what they're yeah. up to. Oh, yeah. And when there was a big rush of the, the uh, satanic films, too, mm-hmm. which kind of that theme a yeah. little bit in there. And Race with the Devil is a great one. Mm. Another one, people on vacation in a motorhome. They come across something out in the woods that they shouldn't have seen. And now these Satanists are after them and chasing them across country. And they were just out to have a vacation, man. And, you know, it shouldn't be a horror scene. It shouldn't be a scary place. They're parked by a lake. But now, if you go anywhere like that and you've seen that, that movie, then... You're thinking that, you know, you're thinking it's creepy where I'm at now when there's nothing inherently creepy really about it. And if, it. if you're not chased by Satanists, you're chased by mutants, right? <laughs> In the hills have eyes, right. right? The lesson here is don't leave home. <laughs> I think when you listen to some of those key players in horror in that period, say a Wes Craven or something like that, They'll inevitably talk about some of the news footage that was coming back from Vietnam Mm. and, you know, the horrific imagery that Americans were being exposed to at that time. And, you know, if you're going to make a horror picture when everyone has seen that, you know, what are you going to show them to scare them? Uh, when everyone has seen that, then the vampire in his castle maybe uh, isn't going to phase them. Oh and yeah, you, and you uh-huh. need to to present it in a in a more familiar context in order to make it real enough to affect folks. But I suspect that there's some level of artists thinking about what they may have been thinking about when they did the things they did when they were young, once they're older. Uh-huh. And that being essentially sort of a revisionist take on, you know, gee, what, why did we do that? You know, because yeah. the, the, the question remains for me, if you had taken whatever idea that you had for a horror film, be it Last House on the Left or whatever, and made it at Warner's or MGM on uh-huh. sound stages, what would that have been like? You know, oh, would yeah. you have been on those sound stages saying, no, no, Everyone's already seen that Vietnam footage. So we need to make sure that this is like has a documentary feel to it. And that's what we need to create on these here big budget sounds. <laughs> I, I just, I don't buy it. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think there was a time when I would have bought that. Yeah. But, uh, I think that time for me is over. And, and again, the truth must be in the middle. So, yeah. uh, w- was that stuff on some level an influence even subconsciously on the choices that were being made by these creators at that time? Sure. You know, let's, let's take them at their word. Yeah. But I think the, the conditions under which those movies were made informed a lot of those choices more than anything. Yeah. And they may very well have been different choices altogether had those conditions been different. And I think the later work of some of these very same folks sort of bears that out. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, you know and then there's the, we, we need to kind of, I think, figure out or talk about, which I, I don't know if we started, was the Psycho and Night Living Dead, the beginning of this, what where the shift was, because after that, there were a lot of movies made utilizing the same type of themes, the same type of settings, and were they done for the same reason, budget, were they done because, well, this one made on a farm was scary and they made some money, let's us make one on a farm with a killer, that you know, and maybe we'll make some money too. Yeah. I mean, and and, I'm sure that was kind of the mindset because 
everything imitates something that was successful, especially in the horror movies and sci-fi movies and such. What was that other one you were talking about? The the one, the barn. Oh, Barn of the Naked Dead. Barn of the Naked Dead. Great title. Yes. Lovely title. And it's it's released under more than one title, but that's how I found yeah. it was Barn of the Naked Dead, and it's clearly uh, one of those. Oh, something else made money. Let's do this yeah. because it's. Showgirls bound for Las Vegas break down driving across the desert and end up tied up in a barn with some other women yeah. who are selectively either being chosen to mate with the killer or <laughs> you know, be hunted by the killer a la you know, the, the most dangerous game or they're going to end up as, as stew. I don't think there's any cannibalism <laughs> in it, but I, I will leave that on the table. But, but that was influenced clearly by other movies. Yeah, now when, was this, when did this one come 74. out? 74. 74. Same year as Texas Chainsaw. Same year as Chainsaw. What about Three on a Meat Hook? Do you remember when that came out? So I want to say that's either 73 or 75. Oh, okay. So either but it's clearly mid-70s, it yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So there were a lot of these around the same time. Yeah, because Three on a Meat Hook is, you know, the guy goes cruising single bars to pick up women and then... Takes them back to his uh, house yeah. and has them hanging up in but the barn. Yeah. With, but that one, didn't their car break down or something? The first probably, three that we probably. see? Again, so don't leave home. Like that barn movie. You yes. Know, yeah. Uh, same type of thing. Don't accept help from strangers. <laughs> also, it, it begins the trope of you know outsiders clearly messing where they're not invited and don't belong. Yeah. Uh, don't poke fun at the locals because yeah. they will come back and get you. <laughs> And you see that most clearly with the hitchhiker in uh, Texas, Chainsaw. Yeah. Who turns out to be Leatherface's brother. Yeah. Now, Chainsaw, we just showed that back in October at the Narrow. Hadn't seen that in a long time. And uh, still just as effective as it as it was the first time I saw it. In fact, now, Tony and I went to, we drove up to The Bird, remember that? Yeah. A few years ago and saw it as a, a late show at The Bird in in an ice storm. I think it was, it was ice all over the place and the place was packed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know... These settings and these movies do have reach people on a on a level that I guess the familiarity they can relate to, you know. Other than I love a good gothic horror movie, God knows I do, but I can't really draw from any experience of being in that setting to feel it on a certain level. What? The creepiness of it. I've been to a farm before. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, think about this. I mean, starting with say Last House on the Left, are we there seeing the beginning of the young protagonist trope uh-huh. because at, at what point did the heroes in horror movies stop being middle-aged men? Oh yeah. Right. Well, because, there's an, there's because Cushing, who is a standby for, for hammer, right? Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. If he's not playing Frankenstein, then he's playing Van Helsing. Yeah, pretty right? much. Yeah. Uh, but he's an older fellow. Yeah. Right. Uh, your protagonists for the universal films are older people, right? Established people. And this is a trope that carries up through Mm-hmm. Um, the 60s, where we'd have settled, older, rational, reasonable, you know, middle-aged uh, establishment type yeah. uh, uh-huh. protagonists. Uh-huh. And then you reach a period where suddenly all the protagonists or victims are young people, right? They're all, they're not teenagers, yeah. but they are in their 20s, right? Yeah. Or just around that 19 to 21 yeah. mark, they, because they, this between is... Between teenagers and... and you know, young adults. Because yeah. these are the people that you get in Last House and Texas Chainsaw yeah. and Black Christmas and Three on a Meat Hook. Exactly. And, and so on and uh-huh. so forth, right? Uh, suddenly, they're the targets. 
They're either going to survive or they're not. But that's you have a whole generational slide there coming into yeah. the 70s. Well, I think what you I think the transition is a little more gradual than some of the other things that we're talking about because I think once you get to the mid 60s and on, you're looking at uh, an emphasis on young folks, often a young couple, yeah, as effectively the protagonists of the story. Okay. With uh, Peter Cushing or Peter Cushing at all as essentially the Obi-Wan Kenobi in the story. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. This is, this is, so you begin, so if you go all the way back, for example, to the first Hammer Dracula, where you have Harker taken out in the first act. And then Van Helsing sort of replace him as the protagonist. He is that, the protagonist indeed. And then once you get again into in, into the mid-60s and beyond, Cushing or his, I hesitate to say equivalent, because it, did he have an equivalent? But for sake of... Uh, <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> never has and never For the sake will. of discussion, <laughs> his equivalent... Is is functioning as the 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 sage advisor, you know, the Merlin or or Obi Wan Kenobi to the to the young yeah. protagonist, you know. But it's, oh yeah. yeah, but it's the younger guy and uh, and his love interests that mm-hmm. are ostensibly the focus and protagonists of the picture. And then eventually you reach a point where the sage advisor figure is gone altogether, and the kids are left on their own. Yeah, and you see that uh, working through Rosemary's Baby, where the sage advisor just happens to be working for Satan. <laughs> <laughs> and so does the, the husband and the young yeah. couple. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I something I said the other night it just came back to me, but... Talking about the pastoral settings not being creepy, but being made to be creepy after mm-hmm. what you've seen. But making you see that, the the best example of it ever to me is the intro from Tales from the Dark Side, where they're showing these, you know, the covered bridge, this country road, this meadow, nothing, nothing creepy about it. It's in yeah. the daylight. It's pretty. It looks peaceful and relaxing. But then that voiceover comes in, that monotone voiceover. And then music, and I think it goes to a negative image or something right towards the end. But that voiceover and that music changes the whole feeling of those images. That covered bridge becomes creepy and you don't want to go on it. You know, that meadow, (laughs) it's like something bad is happening there and you don't want to know about it. That's an interesting example because I don't think, because that Tales from the Dark Side intro was in fact quite creepy when I was a kid. And I don't think I was sitting there going, because I have seen Last House on the Left or any number Mm -hmm. Or Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or any other of pictures. I associate these images with creepiness. Yeah, certainly wasn't the case when I was a kid. Yeah, I think it's just it, it's something about those those lonely, isolated settings. Yeah. that activate something in the mind. Yeah, that it only needs a little nudge over the edge to become scary. Oh, yeah, you yeah. Know? and that nudge is that the music and the voiceover. Because if yeah. you watch it, if you turn the sound off. And you watch the intro, you're like, you'd be just, you know, yeah. it's pretty, but that's it. Yeah. And then you turn that sound up and that chilling music and that voiceover and then it clicks yeah. that, that isolation, you feel it then. And what's beyond what's in that covered bridge. I can't see, yeah. or, you know, what's, what's outside the frame of this picture, this meadow that's going to come up behind me while mm-hmm. I'm sitting there enjoying the sunshine, you know, the dark side is always there. Waiting for us to enter, waiting to enter us, which, you know, brings me to the, to the question, were those kinds of settings always going to be as effective as they were? 
and it just took the film industry that long to tap that mm-hmm. resource? Yeah. Or was there something that shifted in the period where that setting became prominent in horror that uh, amplified or emphasized or established the, the creepiness of it? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. And I don't know the answer to that. But. Well, I think, again, you can, maybe I'm going too highbrow on you here. That's why you're here. Well, <laughs> okay. Th- think about this, right? Before the 1900s, your big killers in America, Wild West, right? Okay. Wild, untamed West. Yeah. You know, uh, you venture west of the Mississippi River, and there's Billy the Kid, there's Wild Bill Hickok, and any number of gunslingers in the Old West, uh-huh. right? But as long as you stayed back east, you're probably okay. You get to the 1920s, Prohibition, right? It's gangsters. Yeah. Right? Capone, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. So the mob is who you got to be afraid of. Moving to the 30s, and it's bank robbers, right? It's Bonnie and Clyde, and it's Dillinger, pretty boy Floyd, and, and so on and so forth. Uh-huh. But then you skip through the war years, and after the war years, like I said, there's there's Starkweather, right, in Nebraska. What is he, 16, 17 years old? Goes on a killing spree, shoots his girlfriend's parents, uh-huh. and then 10 or 12 other people before they finally catch him, yeah. send him to the electric chair. And there's crazy Ed Gein up in Wisconsin. Yeah. Well, by the, And then there's Manson. You yeah, know, and everybody knows Manson. I'm sure I'm, I'm glossing over like you know the Hillside Strangler or, or Time uh, of Dread Sundown. Yeah, a, a number of other you know incidents in our collective history. Yeah. But by the time you move into the 70s, and on top of this, you have the growing influence of television, which means you have a growing sense of social isolation, even in regular communities, because people are staying in to watch TV because there's more on TV. And you have less of a sense of actual community. Mm-hmm. So you don't know who your neighbors are. You don't know what's going on behind those closed doors or yeah. behind those window shades. Who are the people that you entrust your children to? Right? Uh-huh. Who are the people that are living next door to you? Yeah. And during this time, you have things like Ted Bundy, mm-hmm. right? Who, whose killing spree began in the early 70s. In the mid-70s, you've got uh, not only Gacy... <laughs> the friendly clown, but you've got the son of Sam, uh, Berkowitz in New York, yeah, right? And uh, I just lost the other one, but uh, you know, by because Dahmer is much, much later. But, but but in general, you have more and more of this unsettling. So we never expected that he was quiet. He was such a nice young man, yeah. Right? <laughs> who do you know? Who your daughter's going out with? Who do you know? Who your son's going out with? Who do you know? What your kids' teachers do? I mean, what yeah. are they up to? On Saturdays and Sundays and what's in so-and-so's basement. And you don't know. So there's growing unease and mistrust. And I'm not saying that the filmmakers were consciously tapping into that, of course, so much as they're just looking to make a quick buck. Mm -hmm. But again, it's we don't have a great traditional setting. All we've got is this regular, ordinary town with a few selected places we can film on location. How do we make that scary? Uh Uh-huh. Well, you know, let's just think about who could be living there. What could be living there? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a werewolf. It just has to be something hiding behind a mask. Yeah. And that mask is your friendly neighborhood postman. (laughs) Yeah. Or the Sunday school teacher. Yeah. Or whatever. The guy, the plumber who comes to fix your pipes. Yeah. Well, that was the thing with Ed Gein. You know, he was just old, quirky old Ed who did babysit some of the the kids in the town and and did odd jobs for people, Mm -hmm. you know. And you never would have thought that, oh, this quiet, you know, kind of maybe even socially awkward, not retarded, but mildly off guy, lived on the old family farm. Oh, no, not Ed, you know, not up there on that family farm. That family's been there for years. And then somebody shows up one day 
and they opened the barn and there's a headless body hanging, you know, female body hanging by its feet, gutted and field dressed. You know, and they go in the house and there's this horrific scene of bone furniture and skin lampshades and a belt made out of nipples. Yeah, and, and something on the stove and in the fridge and all this stuff. And innocence lost. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And from you know, and there then the farm is scary. You know, this peaceful, serene setting is no longer. It took a while because that was the Ed Gein. That happened what in the fifties? Fifty eight. Fifty eight. So it kind of took a while for film to catch up to use that type of thing. And I'm sure there were a couple in the sixties that we that we're just spacing out on. Well, maybe, Psycho. But, Psycho is the most direct descendant of the Gein case. Yeah. Not everybody realizes that the uh, the alternate. Uh, derivative of the Gein case is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you know, it's obvious with the bone furniture and the lampshade oh, yeah. Um, yeah. from skin and, and the cannibalism and, yeah. and so on. Took it to a more fantastical But uh, that element. that film focuses on what they found inside the farmhouse, whereas yeah. Psycho focuses on the fact that, you know, Ed sometimes dressed up as his mother yeah. or, or had that kind of psychological break in his, in his upbringing. Yeah. Right. So it, it's two sides of the coin. Now, did you see Deranged? Have you seen that? No, but I'm, fam- I'm vaguely familiar with it. I think what we did a, actually did a podcast on that a couple years ago. That's a marriage between the two. Mm-hmm. It's closer to, I think, the actual Ed Gein story from what I've read over the years in, in so far as the amount, you know, the number of people he actually did kill, which really wasn't that many. No. He was more of a ghoul. He dug up graves and stuff and the what he did and everything that kind of plays out and it's it's a interesting little film independent low budget film but it starts off kind of like a documentary mm-hmm. and then forgets about that you know about a third into it mm-hmm. and it starts off with this reporter talking to the camera and telling what happens and then somewhere towards the middle he shows back up and you forgot that that was what the movie was like and then he disappears again you never see him again and it's just the straight story you know but it's the same thing I mean you know it's it's the farm and he uh, it's Ezra Cobb is his character he's not called Ed Gein mm-hmm. but uh, it's pretty interesting if you you know familiar with all that you should check that one out you've seen that one haven't you Tony yeah. yeah well I think in terms of why it took aside from Psycho which is on a relative scale it's a very affecting and effective picture, but on a relative scale, it's a pretty mild interpretation of the Gein mm-hmm. case. In terms of why it took the movie so long to represent that on screen to the extent, to the extent that something like a Texas Chainsaw does. Yeah. Well, it has everything to do, I think, with the fact that with the aforementioned erosion of the old studio system comes the fall of the production code. Oh, yeah. So okay. by by the uh-huh. time you get to the 70s, you've already had the period where porno films are playing in art houses and, yeah. and whatnot. That's uh-huh. very much a shift that takes place in the 60s where there's a, there's a lot less lockdown on what can be uh, shown in movies that are expected to have a wide distribution as yeah. opposed mm-hmm. to just... Yeah. Mm-hmm you know, very narrow 42nd Street uh-huh. runs or, or whatever. So, so so I think that pretty well covers that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Particular uh-huh. element of... Yeah, I'm with you there. That makes, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm trying to think through the 60s, what, you know, horror movies or, or fantastic movies like that were out. And the Hammer stuff, of course, stands out, but that was still all gothic until you get to 8072 or... Scars. No, Satanic Rites is what I'm thinking of what takes place in modern day. Yeah. 
which combines kind of Saint, the Satanism along with the Dracula yeah. thing, but it takes place in modern right. building and all this. But before that, I think I keep going back to Night of the Living Dead and was it 68? 68. 68 is one of the first ones I can think of that takes that average, ordinary, comfortable setting and turns it into terror or creep, you know, creepy and horror. And I'm getting away from the, I'm talking horror movie stuff like like zombies and the and Leatherface Killer and so, not like actual crime case films. Yeah. Like was it in Cold Blood? Yeah, with Bobby Blake and the other guy. Chilling movie. Yeah, but it was an actual. It's a report, basically a report of an actual event. Well, and you can make that uh, case about the town that dreaded sundown. Of yeah. course, right? But true, that's, uh, true that's crime. What, yeah, true crime. So I'm I'm taking those kind of out of the out of the game here. Well, where where do you? And this is an interesting question. A way to go about it. Where do you draw the line between what's considered horror and what's just a thriller? Yeah. You ever read uh, King's uh, Dance Macabre? No, the, no, I have not. Uh, where he basically analyzes uh, horror fiction in in media between the fifties and the and the start of the eighties. Right? Oh, okay. And he comes up. It's. I wish I had the book with me because I've been rereading it lately. But uh, he has a list of twenty films that he considers to be you know, essentially really scary ones. Uh-huh. And all but four of the 20 films on his list mostly take place after dark. But on that list are movies like Deliverance. Oh, yeah. And Wait Until Dark, which it's uh, Audrey Hepburn. And mm-hmm. uh, who's Harry wrote from Scarsdale? Mm-hmm. Alan Arkin? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the one where she's blind, She's right? blind, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Which, terrifying movie, but, you know, do you consider it a horror film? Most people would not. Yeah. You know, most people probably would not consider Deliverance to be a horror film. But it's a, a thriller. But in, in certainly in terms of, like, an ordinary pastoral setting, it's a rafting trip that goes awry <laughs> in a very yeah, bad way. Yeah. There's another film along those lines where these three or four, four or five businessmen go on a trip like that and it just shit hits a fan and I can't remember what it is and I think Ronnie Cox is in that also and I shouldn't have even brought it up because <laughs> that's all I can think of <laughs> but I, I had read something a while back people comparing it mm. or contrasting to mm. Deliverance and uh, I'll have to look that up because I think that's one of those I put on the list like oh I need to check this out mm. you know but yeah, now that's a whole other discussion right there. What's a horror picture and what's a thriller picture? Right, and I don't want to take us down that road too far. I'm, I'm yeah. just saying you do have these elements of you know, when the fantastic begins to happen to ordinary people under yeah. otherwise regular uh, circumstances. Is it fantastic enough to cross that line into something truly horrifying? You know, yeah. whether there's a monster in the movie or just uh, an unsettling human antagonist. Yeah, right? well, I, th- I think an unsettling human antagonist where. It, it, they're something horrible. They have horrible intentions to do something, but mm-hmm. the horror doesn't actually happen. Like in Wait Until Dark, mm-hmm. nobody gets cut up with a chainsaw, no, or a slashed with a razor beyond recognition. You know, fed into a wood chipper. Yeah, nothing like that happens in that. But it's very suspenseful, mm-hmm. and it's a th- you're on the edge of your seat. What's going to happen to her? You know, and these guys are coming after. It's a very good movie. You know, Deliverance. Those guys do some horrible things, but I mean, I wouldn't call it a horror movie, right? But I call it a thriller, advent not adventure movie, but you know. So where where and I don't know, this is going to sound like a tangent too, but so you know you you've got somewhere in your mind there is a line of demarcation between a deliverance 
Yeah. And a last house on the left. Yeah. Even though bad things happen to yeah. people in both films, there's there's varying levels of revenge. Right. Yeah. And only and one guy. There's a whole other topic. We could do a an, an hour or so on just revenge films at oh, some point, sure. which would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh, but anyway, sure. go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, it's just, you know, an, in one film, you know, the two girls are raped and killed and the parents have to, you know, uh, kill the bad guys. Yeah. And the other one, uh, Ned Beatty is raped. <laughs> Ronnie Cox ends up dead, although he isn't murdered. He's, what, thrown out of the boat? Is that right? Yeah. yeah right. Um, and and Bert gets his arm broken, but he's still alive at the end of the movie. So bad things happen, yeah. but not to the extent that they do in Last House on the Left. It's just an interesting Nobody parallel. gets disemboweled. No, no. Yeah. No, there is no horrifying uh, revenge structure in uh, in Deliverance like there is in Last House or yeah. there is in I Spit on Your Grave. Yeah. You know, where the, clearly <laughs> I'm not just going to get even. I'm going to get even. Yeah, body parts don't get cut off in Deliverance. <laughs> we'll just let leave it at that. Yeah. Once this ball gets rolling mm-hmm. with the, the serene pastoral settings, in the and I say the golden age of the drive-in, the grindhouse era, I think we've established it's like the early 70s mm-hmm. is when it gets a, starts going and gets established. After that, it kind of snowballs. Now, are we still, do we think it's still budget necessity or is it eh, I guess it's probably a little bit of both though is it hey the, you know Chainsaw made some money such and such movie made some money let's us make one like that we know in the, once the 80s got here late 70s early 80s after the Halloweens and the Friday the 13th there was many copycats of those mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. but in between that there were a few here and there like the one that we talked about on podcast just a couple back, uh, or maybe it was the last one, Blood and Lace, mm-hmm. which was takes place in a a halfway house, but kind of like an orphanage almost. Sure, but it's not supposed to be a horror setting, but it turns to turns out to be. Can you think of any other ones? I don't any, know. any other horror movies like that between like Chainsaw and say Halloween and Friday the Thirteenth? Well, I mentioned The Hills Have Eyes. I think that was 77. Yeah. Halloween is 78. After Halloween, I'm not sure. I would defer to the Commodore. I'm not sure I, I absorbed the question properly. Well, we, we've, we've talked about how once it was established that these that you can make horror in a in a innocuous setting, a serene setting, a pastoral, yeah. safe, I hate to use the word safe space, but a, a setting that would not inherently be scary once it's established in the early 70s that you that you can make these places scary yeah do you think that ones that came after that immediately after that were of the same way as far as okay we got a little bit of budget you know we don't have a budget to go anywhere that's inherently creepy or build a set or anything can we use mr johnson's barn or or the farm down the road was it that, or was it, hey, that made money on a farm. Let's us make a movie like that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the the latter, to some extent, seems to make the most sense to me. Because y- you said we don't have the money to, you know, build whatever elaborate set yeah. or whatever the case may be. So if you're an independent producer looking to make maximum profit on this horror project you're invested in, you know that these other pictures made the kind of money you're looking to make without the need for building elaborate sets on yeah. the South Ages. 
why would you even be interested in doing that? Yeah. You know? I think you have to look to when the majors in whatever form they were taking at the time did invest in horror thriller type content. What were they doing? Exorcist, yeah, Jaws, oh yeah, Omen. But the the vast majority of the of the horror movies we think of when we think of nineteen seventy stuff was independently produced, right? Yeah. From, from all the things that we've talked about so far, to, oh, yeah. Car- to uh-huh. Carrie, to Halloween, to all those things. What would be your motivation to do anything more elaborate than you needed to with setting Yeah, you know, in that situation? Yeah. Well, and I think Halloween is probably one of the best examples of making it work. Yeah. Because you, you take a middle-town America, average neighborhood. Right. And you take Halloween night, which is supposed to be kids' night. Go out and get some candy, dress up, have a good time. Right. And then it becomes, under the hands of Carpenter, very creepy, (laughs) very scary, looking over your shoulder. And from then on, that's what you think of it, you know? The first Halloween was just kind of, I guess, like a master class in that, at least in my opinion. (laughs) Well, I'm taking a quick look here, not to to jump in, but here here are the big movies of 79. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to give you the whole list. I'm going to give the ones that you probably, you know, your audience would be most familiar with. Okay. Okay. So following Halloween, the the next year, you've got um, Alien, which is beyond the purview of what we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah. You have the Amityville Horror. Okay. Which is a movie about the bad place, right? Yeah. But again, you don't expect Satanism. You know, murders took place in that house. Yeah. Like uh, in cold blood. Yeah. Okay. And then a family buys the house and more bad things happen. And some of those may be supernatural. You have uh, Cronenberg's The Brood, which is also oh. beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. You've got Badham's Dracula, which is a return to gothic horror. Uh huh. Phantasm, Coscarelli's Phantasm. Oh, yeah. Which is set in a pretty. You know, middle America kind of town, but it clearly veers into territory beyond the scope of our discussion. <laughs> yeah. Frankenheimer's Prophecy, which is another you know man versus nature gone yeah. amok. And uh, hmm, one of your favorites. I'll, I'll skip past it and come back to it. Okay. When a Stranger Calls. Okay. Yeah. Right. Which is it's a regular home and, you know. Yeah. And then back up to a tourist trap. Ah. <laughs> Yeah. And you know, that's because I know roadside attractions are near and dear to hey, your heart. Yes, sir. I love them to death. And we'll skip Fulci's uh, uh, sequel to uh, Dawn of the Dead, Zombie. Oh. <laughs> Although Class it does have <laughs> zombie versus shark. But awesome. yeah, go back to, all right, to, so Tourist Trap. Let's let's uh-huh. work with that, right? Because again, who expects bad things out of a roadside attraction? Yeah, and a cheesy, you Unless know. you've heard bad things about carnies all your life. <laughs> and that's one that, uh, I would like to do a, a podcast just on that film at some point. I need mm. to see it again. It's been a few years. Yeah. But I remember watching it the first time and going, man, why doesn't this have a little more of a following? You know, this is pretty damn creepy. Mm-hmm. And uh, But like again, like you say, you know, the, the roadside attractions, that, you know, reputation over the years of just being run down and cheesy and, you know, oh, you know, let's stop here with the kids and we'll see the the mystery thing or the mystery hole or whatever it is or the world's largest ball of twine. And then that make, movie makes you go, maybe we're not going to stop at that now. <laughs> right. Because the consistent underlying thematics of most of these films are, and I was joking about this before, never leave home, right? Yeah. You, you, you travel someplace different, someplace else, uh-huh. someplace new. Yeah. 
And maybe you're the obnoxious person from the big city who pokes fun at the locals. Yeah. The hayseeds, the rubes. Or maybe you just uh, have a bad attitude. Or maybe even though you are a good person, you still run afoul of something that's wrong. Yeah. And you become the victim. Yeah. Right? And there's just this, this kind of underlying mistrust of the other. Right? Yeah. Uh, we should. I told you we should never have taken that left turn at Albuquerque. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting here thinking about this as we're talking, and, and and I begin to realize that horror films, as differentiated from thrillers, the definition of which is somewhat amorphous. But uh, sure. just yeah. just, just uh-huh. go with me on that. Right. Right. For sake of discussion, we'll we'll say that a thriller is something a little more procedural and a little more real world. And a little more concerned with those things mm-hmm. than a horror movie would be. Yeah. But really all throughout the history of the horror film. So we, we're talking about, you know, when did it transition from these settings to the pastoral setting? But really there's a common thread that runs all the way through these things from the very beginning, which is the other place, right? Mm-hmm. So, so right. Sam was talking about yeah. the, the fear or mistrust of the other. So if you go back to the 30s, you're looking at the universal horrors, which are set in the old world or uh-huh. in some form of the old world, transported to the new. Um, even in the independent, non-universal films, like a, like a white zombie, you know, yeah, as the uh-huh. exotic uh-huh. other setting. Mm-hmm. And you get into the '40s again. Universal is is dominant in a new form. Uh-huh. But it's this uh, never, never land, right? It's this, it's this sort of uh, out of time, out, out of time pseudo Europe. Yeah. You're not quite sure exactly where it's supposed to be or when exactly yeah. it's supposed to be. It's a whole other world unto itself. Into the 50s with the Atomic Age, which is ostensibly tied to its time and place a little closer than the things we've talked about so far, but still exists in its own sort of bubble and some sort of desert suburb yeah this yeah. sort of suburban techno utopia slash desert backlog yeah or i'm sorry backlot world that, uh-huh. that that whole milieu exists in that feels very well placed and very much of its time particularly in retrospect probably yeah. but still when you think about it like no real place in time that ever was mm-hmm. on and on into the gothic revival of the 60s and uh-huh. now the, the pastoral settings of the 70s and the one thing that all of these things have in common is that they are completely removed from the everyday experience of most yeah. people right so if, if i'm making a point here and i'm not sure that i am i think it might be <laughs> that this the shift into the pastoral setting the setting in and of itself is not so far afield from what horror films have always done right yeah. really which is take you out of the familiar and put you somewhere else yeah you know and then circle back to the previous discussion about budgets and locations and uh-huh. you know the practical circumstances under which these things yeah were made and here is a something else another kind of neverland yeah that the majority of the audience will not be familiar with in a way that would sort of diffuse what we're trying to accomplish mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. that we can represent on film you know cheaply using uh, uh, natural light and on and yeah. on and on. 
And then again, once that's established as viable, then yeah, uh, these things tend to run on trends, and you're going to see uh-huh. it repeated over oh, yeah. and over again. Yeah, yeah, uh, and that's an excellent, excellent point. I think the major difference is when you make this last transition, you've brought it very close to home, right? You go to the movies, right, to be scared. Yeah, but the chances that once you leave the theater, your belly full of popcorn and soda, right, and you're not going to drive past the creepy medieval castle on the way home. And you're not going to drive through the atomic testing grounds on the way home, <laughs> probably, unless you More live likely. in Nevada yeah. or New Mexico. But you may see a broken down car on the side of the road and someone who's flagging you down because they need help. And stopping to help that person is the worst decision you could possibly make <laughs> because they turn out to be the psycho killer yeah. who's just waiting for someone to foolish enough to stop and help them. Yeah. And that's the ugly, uh, really, reality, I think, of the pastoral uh, horror setting, that the enemy is much closer to us than he or she has ever been before. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I think you you made that point or made me think of that point when you brought the the Manson murders in the 60s because that was a real turning point and when like tony said too earlier about with vietnam mm-hmm. you know after you've seen that news footage uh well i guess the manson but well, it does happen about the same time about the same time yeah right? vietnam was the first televised war yes so it was in your living room on the six o'clock news on the yeah. six o'clock news and then the manson incident happened and was i mean there had been other serial killers before that but this was the first one that was really in your face and publicized on television and with the, it caught the national attention. And I had the opportunity, I think I was telling you tonight, to talk with an actress who was friends with Sharon Tate and had, had visited with her the night before that happened. Mm-hmm. And she had said that it was a complete shift in tone across California and L.A. the next day. People were like, you know, looking over their shoulder, looking at each other, hiring bodyguards, getting security systems in their homes, where... The night before, it wasn't a thought. So, it, did that have an effect on films going that way in the more the familiar settings? Look, you know, like you were saying, the monster next door. What is that guy doing? Because it's well, this is different. But <laughs> in the forties, you know, when the war started, there was a resurgence in the monster films for escapism. Well, that and you could always make the argument that Frankenstein, although in the novel, of course, he's Swiss, yeah. Frankenstein sounds German, and that war was fought against Germans, Nazis, right? And yeah. by extension, all the classic monsters are classically European, classically Eastern European. So there is, you could make the argument for a subtext of uh, anti-war sentiment in the revival of those particular themes and tropes okay i don't think that was consciously again you know <laughs> I, I, i'm ascribing a lot of motive here that it's easy to do in retrospect yeah right i think tony's probably closer to the reality on, on the truth that I, i'm not going to say that whoa yeah people sat around and said you know we should make a movie that basically preys on people's fears of the manson murders but with the dissolution of the studio system that he's talked about and and the need to just we're on a shoestring budget here. Let's go out and shoot on location and use available light. What can we do with that? And then you consciously or subconsciously come up with a story that basically uses Manson as a starting point. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's a combination of things that just happened to click in that place in that time because of what the country is going through, yeah. uh, both consciously and unconciously, mm-hmm. you know, so it's it, it, lightning in a bottle 
is what it is. Yeah. I have grown over time skeptical, if not cynical, about, you know, all of these analyses that suggest or insist upon the socio-political underpinnings of all these um, genre films. Uh, and that cynicism may lead me to sort of overcompensate in the other direction and mm-hmm. be a little too dismissive of of that sort of thing. I want to establish that. But to, to your point, the, the film historian David Skull, in one of the books that he wrote, the name of which escapes me right now, does talk about the fact that it's no, well, he puts forward the notion that it's no mistake that uh, uh, the Frankenstein monster, as portrayed by Karloff in that original film, uh, you know, comes between the First and Second World War mm-hmm. and uh, would surely have triggered in the minds of the audience of that time images of the boys that came back from the Great War in a time where technology was such that you could have parts blown off of you and live. Yeah. And return to uh, a, a civilian life as some sort of surgical horror. You know? Yeah. And uh, he puts forward the notion that the incredible shock that uh, the, that that film had upon its or shock effect that that film had on its audience um, might very well be tied to that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be too quick to dismiss that idea because I think there's some some merit there mm-hmm. just tying into what you were saying about right. the, the Eastern European element and, and but it, it's always easier to make that analysis in hindsight yeah. you know just yeah. like to look back at say well the Amityville horror for all its supernatural trappings as as a successor to the exorcist and the omen is also about you know, double digit inflation in the Carter years <laughs> because you sink your life savings into this house it's full of, you know, the walls are bleeding and there's slime coming out and you can't get rid of the flies <laughs> and your daughter's talking to this imaginary pig demon and, my God, we're never going to be able to get out from under this thing. The yeah. bills, right? And after the fact, you go, well, yeah, I suppose there's an argument to be made there, but at the time, no, they were just trying to make a spooky, supernaturally haunted house movie, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Everything else is coincidence. <laughs> so, yeah, um, even if I, I sound like I'm buying into my own bullshit, I'm just like, you know, just trying to just trying to put it out on the table. Just trying to have some fun, folks. That's right. That's right. <laughs> now, oh, go ahead. Uh, or I was not gonna, a licensed psychologist. I just play one in a podcast. <laughs> I was going to say you mentioned Halloween earlier and and the the Halloween and post Halloween cycle of uh-huh. horror films, and that's interesting because you know I was saying before about how the the one thing that all these different conventional settings for horror films that yeah. you have from the 30s all the way into the middle 70s is that sense of other world except for Haddonfield yeah which is every town USA yes. exactly like Luray <laughs> <laughs> wait we're in Luray <laughs> we gotta go bye <laughs> no, go, go ahead <laughs> and they were never heard from again yeah so I don't know that I was going on on to uh, a further point there necessarily except to to draw that delineation between mm-hmm. yeah. what I had said earlier uh-huh. about, and about Halloween in particular. Yeah. Well, I mean, to a degree, it's, it's the standout ones like Last House is every town USA. I mean, it's the girl's home on a lonely country road. Now, for the people who don't have never lived, you know, have lived in suburbia or lived in the city, 
I guess that is an otherworldly kind sure. of experience, as well as a farm is, too. I mean, not so much to me, because I had my mom's parents. My mom grew up on a farm in Carolina, so I had been visiting, you know, since I was a little kid. So I'm familiar with that type of atmosphere. Right. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I had been back and forth on one. But I guess people who would never have lived in the cities or whatever have never been to a farm. That is otherworldly. So, yeah, yeah I'm following you on that. Yeah. But it's still... It's it still is a familiar setting to a lot of people though, sure. too, but Haddonfield. I mean, everybody, just about everybody, has lived in a neighborhood or close to other houses at some point. So that's yeah, the Haddonfield thing is a, more of a central, I think, yeah, type of movie for that for that type of thing. Now let's go this direction. Of these types of movies that we're talking about, with a familiar setting, a peaceful setting, serene, not in, inherently scary. What's your favorite, or one or two of your favorites? Oh my gosh, I, I don't, I don't know, because I, over the, here in the back of my mind, I keep thinking I never got to talk about the other. Do you remember that TV movie from the very early seventies? Oh, Twins on a Farm. Except maybe they're not. Vaguely, yeah, I think Victor French is in it. I could Vaguely. look it up. Yeah, based on a book. Yeah, creepy for a TV movie that uh-huh. I saw as a child. Creepy as hell. Yeah, saw it again recently on on DVD. Oh, still pretty effective. Yeah, yeah. But of the ones we've mentioned, I always had a soft spot uh, for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, you know, since I was first introduced to it, simply because it is so viscerally effective. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And oh yeah. To be, uh, I brought this up at a con once. You you have, it is relatively bloodless. Yep. Yes. Right. It is. Halloween is relatively bloodless. You don't really get the um, you don't get you don't get Sam Peckinpah territory until you get to Friday the Thirteenth. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, I would have to say go with that one. Yeah. Do, you, do I have to go talk about why or just? <laughs> well, if you'd like, if you'd like, um, you I'll can come back to it. All you want to. Well, let's um, go around the table. And I'll come Tony? back to it. Well, you know, one uh, picture that Sam mentioned when we were uh, tossing this around. Prior to recording the podcast, uh-huh. that has not come up in this conversation thus far as the Wicker Man. Oh yeah, uh-huh. and uh, you know, to some extent, that's what the Wicker Man is m- known for. You know, being something that's effectively frightening and suspenseful in this really gorgeous, yeah, highly unlikely for a horror film setting. So I think you kind of have to to shout out that one. And that's definitely a favorite of mine. Oh yeah, me too. That I think fits into the category nicely. But aside from that, yeah, I mean, uh, sorry if to echo, but, uh, <laughs> chainsaw, I mean, you just don't beat the saw, man. And <laughs> it just works. It works every single time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that it starts with that weird ass music slash sound effect. And <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The uh, yeah. uh, shots of it's uh, unsettling decomposed bodies yeah. and all that, and it puts you on the edge from the get go. It does, but relative to the conversation we're having about yeah. unlikely or seemingly unlikely settings for scary things, it feels like a bit of a cheat, you know, when you look at it from that perspective. Yeah. Uh, but it isn't. I mean, it, it really. I mean, it uh, it just works. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's not much else to say except but, that uh, it does exactly what it was designed to do oh, yeah. in the most effective possible manner. Mm-hmm. I don't care mm-hmm. who you are. And it has such a, a raw, grainy feel. You know, yeah. it, it feels documentary. You've got that yeah. narration at the beginning and the you know, Larroquette, uh, you know, it's a true story. And what made it more tragic is that they were so very young. Yeah. And you're like, are, th- are, are they going to live? 
<laughs> are they are going well Franklin's not but nobody cares everybody hates Franklin <laughs> you want that guy cheered to... when Franklin got it last time I watched it in the theater yeah yeah but it, it just it is so raw yeah right yeah and you know when you would eventually make your way to the video store and you're like I'm gonna rent this and take it home right it sounds terrible right you know your uh-huh. your folks are what are you watching chainsaw massacre you take that back to blockbuster right now <laughs> where last house on you, you know you could slip last house on the left in the house nobody knew what that was about yeah. unless i sat down and watched it with you you couldn't do that when i spit on your grave no nope. you know that's got spit well, not the spitting with the grave part yeah. right <laughs> I don't even know if I have a number two on this list. Yeah. It's just a big, big gap. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, chainsaw aside, because I agree completely with both of you. I mean, it's a given. That's a given. That yeah. one, it just works and always has and always will. And like I said, I just watched it a month ago with an audience and it worked. Now it works with, and there were people in there who had never seen it before. Mm-hmm. Along with people who had never seen it in a theater before. Right. And I always ask that question when I host movies there at the Narrow, especially the horror movies, you know, who hasn't, who's never seen this, okay, who's never seen it in the theater, trying to get a, you know, a gauge of what we're looking at audience wise, and then watch the audience watch the movie. Right. That's fun, you know. But a chainsaw aside, I'll have to say, I think Last House on the Left uh, is one of my favorite. And that one gets a weird rap from people. Some people just hate it. And think it's just awful. Or it's oh, it's it's too realistic, or it's it's just a snuff film. Yeah, you know, and it kind of is in a way. But it's for the same reason you said about Chainsaw. It's got a, a gritty, almost documentary feel to it. And for me, that's what makes it creepy. Because I don't know who I was talking. It may have been Tony at some point, and I don't know. I think it, if it was you, I was talking to you. Hit the nail on the head. And made me realize it it has a and it may not have been you but if it was you it's got a feeling that the way it's shot everything's kind of close it makes you feel like you're holding the camera or you're in the room with them just leaning against the wall and not not doing anything to stop what's going on Mm -hmm. you know or you're not able to do anything to stop what's going on but you're that close with what's going on with them and following them along and, and this thing that's going on and this horrible you know, acts that they're doing that that makes it creepy and unsettling. Yeah. And the fact that it takes place, two girls going to a concert, everybody's goes to concerts I mean, from your teenage years to, you know, to now to whenever. And then they have in this apartment with people they just met. Well, that's happened. You know, we've all done that, you know, meet some new friends, shit hits the fan. They get carried out down this road and right at her own home and in the woods right behind her house. Yeah. And that's where it all happens. And, the, the feeling of helplessness and hopelessness and, you know, creepiness of it's that could happen right at your own doorstep. You know, there are parts of last house on the left that obviously not, not the worst parts, but there are, there are sections of it that you almost feel like could have been cut out and spliced together into, uh, one of those six or seven minute films that would have been shown when your parents went to a PTA meeting that makes them come home scared, crapless, I'll yeah. say, uh-huh. And caution you, never, never, ever, ever, ever talk to strangers yeah. except a ride from sh- – I mean, that's how uh-huh. it feels. It feels yeah. like yeah. yeah, the ed, the trailer would have been shown at a PTA meeting yeah. just to get you to not let your kids leave oh, the house. Yeah. But, it, but what I was getting at with that is that all of that happens in a very normal setting that mm-hmm. shouldn't be a scary mm-hmm. setting. Right. You know, so I think that's – other than Chainsaw, I think that's the one that works the most for me. And that I, I think I appreciate the most for that, what it does with that. And again, notice that those two come very early in the decade and yeah. every quite naturally that everything afterward 
consciously or not, may feel derivative. Yeah. And it, also, it's another one, too, where you don't see as much blood as you think you do. Right. Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham, mm-hmm. who later went on to do, well, we know, Friday the 13th and then, you know, The Nightmare and, uh, and Hills Have Eyes. Yeah. Which was one that I had, I had never seen up until about two years ago. It, I don't know how it slipped through. <laughs> Slipped through all these years. Effectively creepy. Yeah. Ordinary people in bad circumstances. Yeah. 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 I think we about covered. Anything else you want to add or any any other films like that that we... No, I mean, we, we hit a couple, you know, by name only, right? You can search them back down because I mentioned Black Christmas very briefly. Yeah. That's, yeah. you know, the psycho killer in the sorority house uh-huh. at uh-huh. winter break. Again, you're not really expecting that on a college campus, although it does reinforce the notion, be careful what you do. Well... Yeah, but the killer's not supposed to be in the house with us. Yeah. Right? That's like when a stranger calls. Well, the calls are coming from upstairs, right? The babysitter yeah. murders, right? Uh-huh. Wasn't Halloween originally supposed to be called the babysitter I murders? I think it was. Yes. So was. don't babysit for people. <laughs> if their children are not the kid from the omen <laughs> and the parents are not the killer, the neighbor's a killer. Yeah. Just just send your children to convents. <laughs> Unless you don't trust the nuns, they could be the killer. That's a whole nother nunsploitation. That's a whole nother genre we could talk about at some point. Anything else you got? You want to add on that? This whole thing, Tom? Yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about the um, the obvious thematic connection between the latter Nixon years and Watergate in particular. And I just remember my mama. Oh, here we go. I'm foolish. I'm just kidding. Right now. <laughs> I thought you had something good coming up. <laughs> oh, we was getting all political on us now. <laughs> I thought as soon as I said, I, I thought as soon as I said, I just remember Mama, you would get the joke, right? But no. well, it took a second for it to waft across the room to me. There, it's late here out in the woods. <laughs> in the dark, no one will hear you. No one will come any closer than town. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> in the dark, in the night, yeah, in this cabin, all alone. I dismember mom. <laughs> Great trailer, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, well, yeah, I guess we about covered it then. Mm-hmm. This, is, this has been fun. We yeah. you know, don't get a chance to do this because, uh, you know, Sam chose to live so far away. That's right. And it's all me. <laughs> conscious decision on his part. Oh, I didn't choose to live where I live, let me tell you that. <laughs> uh, it, but, it's but, far, yeah. far too late to ask, let's scare Jessica to death. That was uh, oh, out in the middle. Oh, we keep going. Out in the middle of nowhere. No, no. Out in the middle of nowhere, though, right? Yeah, that's another one. They, move, I think they move or rent a house or something in this middle America town. Yeah. And shit starts happening. Yeah. <laughs> Supernatural shit, or is it? Exactly. Or is it in her head? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's another one I need to watch again. Mm-hmm. I have a copy of that, and I watched it the first time and thought, hmm, this is interesting. It's kind of slow, but I've always heard good things about it, you know? So that's an, have you seen that, Tony? Let's scare Jessica to death. Uh, what'd you think about it? Uh, I liked it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's all you got? Okay. That's all we got. Well, I'll take you at your word. Uh, I'm just going to note that as we move into the 80s, the protagonists continue to get younger, right? You, you yeah. definitely get into younger 20s and even into to teen movies. Because well, yeah, you're teens in the Nightmare series, right? Yeah. When uh, in Sleepaway Camp, they have actual teens playing teens. Yes. Instead of 20 and 30-somethings yes. playing teens. <laughs> yeah. And, and these things go from being conventions to tropes to uh, tired uh, cliches, you know, by the time you get to the end of the 80s. And yeah. the slasher thing has practically run its course. Yeah, um, but 
again, very early in the 70s and, and less so as the decade drags on into the 80s. You have quite a bit of effective setting there that it's, it's something new mm-hmm. and it's something, I'll, I'll throw this piece of horse crap out there again, right? It directly relates to, in some way, the, the bearing of a transformation in, in, in thinking of, of national consciousness that our kids have turned against us, right? <laughs> well, because of the generation gap, right? Uh-huh. Moving out of the, the, what did you call it? The hippie hangover? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the like summer that. of love. That's <laughs> great. That right. <laughs> that, all right. Well, then, you know, you, you just move out on your own and, and, uh-huh. and don't speak to your mother and I anymore. We'll see what becomes of you. And the next thing you know, they're, you know, dead to ditch. <laughs> oh, wow. The 70s. You don't like kids, do you? <laughs> no, it's. Has, <laughs> And you are another thing, you damn kids. Get off my lawn. <laughs> well, all I'll say is it, this is beyond the scope of the discussion as we wrap things up, but uh, Rob Zombie's tribute to this kind of thing, uh, House of a Thousand oh, Corpses, yeah. uh-huh. if what you've got, you know, dumbass, you know, as, as, as uh, Sid Haig so charmingly says, dumbass kids got themselves turned around and got lost, right? <laughs> and Captain Spaulding didn't like kids either. <laughs> but it's the exact same thing, and it, it it's a perfect homage to the exact type of film we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. That's another one. Roadside attraction, cheesy roadside attraction, and then... A tourist trap. Yep. <laughs> Funhouse. I love Funhouse. Oh, man, that's one of my favorite 80s. I don't know if you really even call that a slasher movie. That's just a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. Just a horror. yeah, yeah. You know. But it does take place in the most unlikely of places. Yeah. Who would ever suspect carnies or, well, or, or circus folk? Well. Or, <laughs> unless you've seen Scooby-Doo. <laughs> You know that would be that would be another good one, carny movies or sur- traveling carnival movies, because there's there's a few of them out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and you could start with freaks if you if you really want oh, to. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and definitely going. You kind of have to. Yeah. Well, that's the benchmark. The first one. That know? is true. That is true. Um, Use real circus freaks in your movie. Man, that that movie, infamous. Yeah. Yeah. And Maybe I'll get them to show that in the narrow. Sometime. And and worth its reputation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh, oh man, we're gonna get in talking about freaks and going. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm sure anybody that's still left listening is ready to stop at this point. Well, if I'm gonna talk about my freaks, I'm gonna have to talk about my peaks. That's all. I'm saying. <laughs> well, that's a good note as any to end on. Is that is, and once again, like I was saying, you know, this has been cool because uh, we don't get a chance to get together very often, hardly ever. Every couple of years, maybe, <laughs> and uh, this was cool. I know we've talked all weekend about all kinds of different stuff, but now we got something recorded for posterity. It was fun for me and interesting, so I hope it was for anybody that's listening. Entertaining over here, indeed. All right, well, thanks for listening, everybody. That's it, and good night. 